0: Well, good morning. I see it's 9 o'clock, so it's no sense wasting time. Let's jump in, shall we? What a moving conversation. Constipation. Yay. (laughs) Everybody should talk about constipation at 9 in the morning, don't you think? Absolutely. So my name is Lynn McPherson and I'm a professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. I practice in primary care and in hospice and palliative care. And let me tell you, I feel many a day like I have a Ph.D. in constipatology. My mother, in fact, says, you know, you are the oddest person I know. You could talk about constipation for two hours over dinner and have a good time. I said, absolutely. Such an important topic. So I have nothing to disclose, at least relevant to this presentation. So these are my objectives to talk about what it, I think we all know firsthand what constipation is. And we're all familiar, certainly, with what is opioid-induced constipation. But we're going to look at the formal definition. How do we assess it, particularly OIC? Oh, there's some new tools that we have available. And look at the drugs that we have to treat and prevent constipation. And we've got some new players recently, so it'll be interesting to look at that data. All right, so what do we know here? We know that about 3% of everybody in the United States is taking long-term opioid therapy. So pretty much 3% of Americans probably are looking at constipation. As you can see, it's a ton of prescriptions, 250 million. At least 50% or more of cancer patients will need an opioid, uh, very commonly prescribed for chronic pain. And we're all familiar with the usual and customary adverse effects of the opiates, the nausea, confusion, and certainly bowel dysfunction is right up there. In hospice, we have this prayer, happy is the patient in the PM who has a BM in the AM. I think that's everybody's prayer, don't you think? Oh, yeah, a day without a bowel movement is like a day without sunshine. So what is constipation globally? It's just slow movement of stool through the large intestines, generally resulting in harder, drier stool that's harder to expel. But this would you agree this means different things to different people? Am I right? Particularly when you look at What's your normal bowel habit? Boy, that's different things to different people. When we look at general constipation, what are the causes? Immobility, diet and hydration, cancer-related, hypercalcemia, I always tend to forget about that one, other diseases, and look at those naughty kitten drugs. So certainly, we're going to be focusing on the opioids, but I do think it's important to point out anticholinergics, I think they might be one of the axes of evil in the universe, because they cause a lot of side effects, notably constipation and confusion. The tricyclics, all the Parkinson's drugs, And, you know, when I, um, in my practice in advanced illness, I review the meds for everybody admitted to our hospice program, and I read a clinical pharmacy note, and it seems like everybody and their mother is on one lonely iron tablet. It's just enough to constipate them, turn their stool dark and nauseate them, probably not giving them huge therapeutic effect. Antihistamines, antacids, and so forth. And just being so concerned about everything and stressed out can actually make you constipated. And here's another whole laundry list of secondary causes from organic, endocrine, metabolic, neurologic, so forth and so on. And don't forget, well, drugs again are prominent players there. Diet and lifestyle are a big part of this too. So I I give this as preface because these are all still going on with people who then on top of that are taking an opioid. So what is opioid-induced constipation? It's a change when initiating opioid therapy from baseline bowel habits, defecation patterns, and what individuals would consider as abnormal that is characterized by any of the following. So these are the four variables that people really hone in on. Reduced frequency of spontaneous, as opposed to induced bowel movements, Worf, development of worsening, straining to pass bowel movements. And patients tell you some spectacular stories, don't they? Like, I was afraid my eyeballs would fly out. I was afraid I was going to have a stroke. You know, those sorts of things. A sense of incomplete rectal evacuation. Like, I had a bowel movement, but, you know, I didn't hear the choir sing with that one. It, just, it wasn't a moving experience all the way. The stool is just really hard. So those are the four big variables that we look at. So the prevalence and the impact—if we look at chronic non-cancer pain treat, patients treated with an opioid—anywhere you read these this, this prevalence data anywhere from 15 to 90 percent—I would bet that most of us it would be maybe not a red flag, but certainly a yellow flag if a patient's on a pretty decent opioid regimen and they're like, "Nope, I'm right as right, Not a thing has changed. Really, nothing has changed at all. Not a speck." I mean, I, I kind of question that a little bit. Cancer: 23 to 60 percent. This probe trial was a multinational, inter- internet-based. Survey of about 400 people assessing their impression of taking chronic opioids and what happens with their bowels. 81% reported constipation. It did affect their quality of life, and a third of patients who responded said they would occasionally miss or decrease their dose or stop it altogether to make it easier to have a bowel movement. And we do hear this in end-of-life care all the time, where uh, family members won't give patients their opioids because then they get constipated, and if they give them the bowel regimen, then they have diarrhea, and that's a big mess, and they don't want to deal with that. So. Just horror stories. The pathology. I think we're all pretty familiar with this. You know, we have opioid receptors located throughout the central nervous system and the periphery, and the enteric nervous system is really where we see the largest concentration of opioid receptors outside the brain. We do know that opioid receptors are examples of G-protein coupled receptors, and we have mu, delta, kappa, and we have different flavors of each of these. We have at least three mu receptors. Some people argue we have 25 different kinds, at least a couple of deltas, so who knows? Lots and lots. And we do know that we have from patient-to-patient genetic polymorphisms. So this is why we don't see, we see a variability in the amount of constipation from patient-to-patient. So what happens when an opioid binds to one of these receptors? We see inhibition of peristalsis uh, by inhibiting acetylcholine release, which increases the non-propulsive contractions in the smooth muscle of the gut by inhibition of nitric oxide. It delays gastric emptying, increases GI transit time, inhibits ion and fluid secretion, This is impressive. It occurs within 5 to 25 minutes of taking an opioid. That's pretty magical, don't you think? And obviously we all know, but we need to really stress to patients, you never, ever get tolerance to this. You get tolerance to the sedation, to the confusion, even a little bit to the respiratory depression after a week. I mean, you can still kill somebody if you work at it, but never to the constipation. Never, never, never. So what about our general assessment? We don't want to review the patient's medical history and any of the diseases that could be affecting bowel functioning, their fluid and food intake, including amounts and types, assess their hydration status, asking about medications, of course that's a big one, and evaluating their activity level, level and their ability to use the toilet or the bedside commode. Uh, we were just in a meeting a few months ago and one of the physicians was talking about the squatty potty. Who's heard of the squatty potty? Oh my God, I think all new houses should come with a squatty body. It just puts you in the, it's like, it just needs a big stamp on it saying locked and loaded, baby, here we go. Oh my goodness. So, some of your questions for the patient what do they mean by constipation? So, what are some of the things that patients tell you when you say, what do you mean by constipated? What do you think? Pink shirt? What do you think? She's looking down like, oh my God, I am wearing a pink shirt. I'll give you an example. My mother goes once a week. If she goes twice a week, she says, Oh my God, I've got diarrhea. What am I going to do? Where's the Imodium? And I asked a patient in my clinic recently who was on an opioid. I said, How are your bowels? Is the Marilac still working? She says, Yes, honey, I'm still going five times a day. Five times a day. No wonder you get so much reading done. She says, Yep, twice before breakfast, twice after, and one later in the day. I guess most people are once a day or but you have to admit there's a fair degree of variability, and you have to figure out what's normal for that patient. When's the last time you moved your bowels? And this is, you know, hospice nurses rock my world because they are just so awesome at getting the poop, so to speak. Like, they'll ask the long-term care nurse, has the patient had a bowel movement? And the long-term care nurse will say, yep, they're having regular bowel movements. And then our nurse will dig a little deeper and find out it's rabbit pellet syndrome. Like, they'll squeeze out a little rabbit pellet every three days. That is not regular bowel movements. What's normal? have you noticed any blood or mucus any concurrent symptoms like abdominal fullness or or bloating Um, was it painful to move your bowels did you really have to strain like crazy were you nauseated and what have you tried what are some things that you have heard certainly all the laxatives over the counters we've heard about maybe some prescription drugs what else have you heard Has anybody ever told you i tried to pick it out with my finger yeah somebody one lady told me i thought about using my crochet hook oh Oh, can you say perforated bow or perforated something? That just that killed crocheting for me for quite a while. I have to tell you. <laughs> Thank God she wasn't a knitter. You know what I mean? Ooh, baby, that would have been harsh. All right. History and physical exams, important, of course. And you know so much of the pathology we see with advanced illness, particularly cancer, uh, can be at play here. Uh, medication history, and don't forget the non-prescription meds, which certainly can be contributing. And electrolyte disturbances such as hypercalcemia, hypokalemia, and of course a physical and an abdominal exam. So, you know, there are lots of different scales. You know, you can, here's one that I, just because I have a really cool clip art here, I think is entertaining. Over the last three days, asking them if two is severe, one is some, and zero is no problem, all these accompanying symptoms. So it really helps you get your arms around how the patient is describing the constipation. So that's a useful tool. Um, I'm, as my friend Dr. Walker is here with me, she knows I am a huge fan of the Bristol Stool Chart. I am such a fan of the Bristol Stool Chart. My gift of choice for all of our residents is, you know when you go to Cafe Press, you can have anything printed on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or a little tote bag. I have the Bristol Stool Chart Chart put on a travel uh, coffee mug and I give one to everybody. Dr. Walker has one, my daughter has one, she's a pharmacist now too, all of my residents get one. It's awesome. I mean, what else should you put your coffee in but a Bristol Stool Chart? coffee mug. Am I right? So let's take a look here. Type one is the rabbit pellet syndrome. This is somebody who strains and strains and strains and they squeeze out a little baby acorn. That's what type one is. Type two is the acorns have come together but they're not happy about it. So it's a very lumpy kind of sausage deal. Type three is, well, it's still kind of sausagey, but there are cracks in the surface. Type four is the holy land. That's the holy grail right there. Now I know you think this is ridiculous, but tomorrow morning you will think of me and you will (laughs) you will rate your stool before you say burial at sea I know you will I'll think of you too okay so I wish you all a type 4 tomorrow morning it's just it's smooth it kinda just slides on out it's a beautiful beautiful that's when you hear the angels sing type 5 now we're getting it's getting a little soft blobs with edges type 6 is we're Fluffy, mushy, and type 7 is you're in the splash zone. So that's not a good look either. Um, and actually I was giving a talk at one of my hospices a couple of months ago and I was describing this and the executive director was there and she's not a healthcare provider. And she was like, you know, this is when I have to leave. I can't stand discussions of like snot and gore and blood and stool shit. I just don't want to hear it. So she left. And then the next day she called me and she said, you're not going to believe this, but I had to take my daughter to the pediatrician and she's been constipated. So the doctor pulled a Bristol stool chart out of her, wa- her lab coat I must throw up. Anyway, there are formal research definitions, and I'm going to show you the Rome criteria, which is okay for research but rarely used clinically. And I have to tell you, aside from me being dead in love with this, I've not really seen it often being used clinically. Uh, but generally, we look at patient's complaint. They need to go. They can't go. It's painful. They still didn't get the job done. It's very hard. Uh, so here is the Rome 3 diagnostic criteria for functional constipation, as you can see on the left, and on the right, irritable bowel syndrome of the constipatory variety. And it includes many of the things we've talked about, straining, lumpy and hard stools, sensation that you didn't really get the job done, feel like you, something's obstructing there, they've taken manual maneuvers to try and disimpact themselves, and so forth. Uh, but again, not used much clinically. This is one that's really you're reading more and more about. It's the bowel function index. And it really looks at three things. And the clinician asked the patient these three questions. But if you had to rate 0 to 100, how, what is your ease of defecation in the past 7 to 10 days? So 0 would be, I'm living a good life here. And 100 is, oh my god, don't even go there. Feeling of incomplete bowel, bowel evacuation over the past seven days, again, zero to 100. And then in your own opinion, how constipated do you think you've been over the last week, zero to 100? And then it gets normalized to a 100-point scale, and some guidelines are saying once you hit 30, that's when maybe you should move on from the OTCs and consider a prescription product to treat constipation. And some data has shown just 12 points a 100 points really makes a clinically significant difference. So I think we're going to see more and more of this scale, uh, because we God knows we have more and more of these drugs coming out. So, what do we do about constipation well whether it 's garden variety or opiate, opioid induced I think obviously prophylaxis is the most important thing, and encouraging fluid and increasing fiber within reason i mean When I'm talking about my hospice population, you cannot say you need to eat eight bran muffins a day. That's just not going to happen. High fiber, as a matter of fact, may worsen the discomfort and constipation, particularly if they're a little on the dry side. So you want to make sure they're well hydrated. And physical activity within reason. I mean, somebody with an advanced illness, they're unlikely to start walking five miles a day. So what are our bowel prep options? So let's take a look. Here's the one that we use often, particularly for older adults who have garden variety constipation, is using a bulk forming laxative, so psyllium. So this is going to be your Metamucil group of drugs. Um, Up to one tablespoon three times a day, takes up to a couple, three days to really start to work. Methylcellulose, polycarbophil, and so forth. Um, You have to be careful here. I actually read a report about a nurse who died from anaphylaxis uh, pouring up a dose of psyllium. The fibers went in the air, she inhaled it, and apparently she had an anaphylactic reaction. So, not a good, that's not a good way to die. (laughs) Goodness. Um, Impaction above the strictures, side effects, fluid overload, gas, and bloating. This is not a good look for opioid induced constipation. As a matter of fact, I would say this would be contraindicated, and we should not be using that. Then we have the surfactant, so docusate. Everybody loves a little docusate. You know, 100 milligrams, a couple, three times a day, or the docusate calcium, 240. Again, a couple, three days to really get kick, kicking along. Um, pretty well tolerated. Um, you might want to start lower if you're using a concomitant laxative, like a stimulant, for example. And speaking of the stimulants, we have Bisacodyl, which I personally think is a little harsher than senna. I think senna is one of our first-line workhorse drugs. Uh, we generally start senna at one or two a day and you can go up to eight Sena tablets a day. I do think it's worth pushing it to get the optimal dose if you can achieve it. Um, so obviously with the stimulants, you're going to see a little more abdominal cramping, but you know, generally they work about 50% of the time. The problem is these drugs are so old, we really don't have the data, particularly the way that the new drugs that are coming out are being held to accountability by the FDA. So we don't have that data, so we can do a head-to-head comparison. And then we have the osmotic agents, which are quite beneficial as well. Polyethylene glycol is one of my favorites to recommend for patients. Um, You know, people say, oh, I don't want to like the taste. It's virtually tasteless, absolutely tasteless. Just make sure they stir it for at least a full minute. fairly inexpensive. These all pull fluid into the bowel. That's how they all work. Work within one to four days. I generally start patients on one scoop, go up to two scoops. The problem with polyethylene glycol in patients with an advanced illness is really you should put it in eight ounces of fluid and minimally four ounces. And sometimes our patients can't choke down four ounces of fluid, let alone eight ounces. Uh, But if somebody is worried about the taste, I recommend putting it in hot tea, sweeten it, and then it's awesome. Take it with a cookie and everything is awesome. Lactulose works well, um, although the problem with lactulose is it's a little nauseating. So we use it when we need a twofer in people with an advanced illness, meaning they have hepatic encephalopathy from cirrhosis. So uh, for that, we push the dose for the encephalopathy until the patient has three soft pudding stools a day. You'll never think of pudding pops the same again now, will you? Uh, but it works pretty well for that, but it is a little nauseating. And sorbitol, sometimes we'll use it in lieu of lactulose, although certainly the data is lack, lacking. Glycerin suppositories, I think it's just the stimulation of the rectum that probably is the mechanism there. And then we have the magnesium pro- uh, product. So magnesium citrate, that'll certainly knock your hat in the creek. That gives you a fairly brisk response, and certainly can cause dehydration and orthostasis, particularly in older adults. Magnesium hydroxide, that's good old Mag, which is very mild and actually not a bad choice in older adults, and then mag sulfate also. But you do have to be concerned about too brisk of a response and worry about the magnesium with people with renal impairment. And then we have the enemas. So, uh, you know, I love to hear hospice nurses talk about enemas. Uh, hospice nurses are really experts in this area. There's a docusate enema. Uh, there's the sodium phosphate. You know, the FDA put out a public health warning about Fleet's products, whether it is oral or rectal, because it can be overly aggressive, particularly in older adults. And some people, believe it or not, will take a Fleet's enema every day. I don't know what that's all about, but I'm not, no judgment here, uh, but it's not a good look. It leads to dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. There's a bisacodyl, mineral oil enemas. That's interesting. And enemies, which I don't quite understand because it's like 5 mLs. I I don't understand how that works, but there you have it. All right, so in my practice in hospice and palliative care, this is kind of how we roll for opiate-induced constipation. If they're admitted with colicky abdominal pain, irritable bowel, or most importantly, hepatic primary or METs, and they have confusion and encephalopathy, we do jump in with the lactulose, unless it's too nauseating, and then we will try the sorbitol. Sometimes that gets it done. If that's not the case, which is most patients it's not the case, we start with Senna. We start with plain Senna, not Senna S. More on that in a minute. And we start with two tablets at bedtime, and we'll rock it up to about eight tablets. Alternately, we'll use polyethylene glycol. Sometimes we'll do both together. We start with one scoop, and we'll go up to several scoops a day. Um, If we need to get a little more aggressive, sometimes we'll go to bisicodal, the dulcolax rectal. Um, We might use a magnesium product. We'll be very careful there. But, of course, the nurse is always going to check for ileus to make sure we're not uh, going down the wrong road. And then God bless the hospice nurse if they do not earn enough money, in my humble opinion. If it's a low impaction, what are they going to do? What is the instrument of disimpaction for the hospice nurse? Correct, that would be it. So manually disimpacting the patient, maybe with an enema. And you know, when you look at the data about the warnings about the enemas, I actually am a fan of like a, a soap suds enema or at least a warm water enema. Um, how much of an enema, how much fluid can your bowel accommodate? How much can you infuse by the rectum? And somebody, how much? Three, he says three liters. I heard two liters. Three liters, wow. That'll clean your tonsils, won't it? Wow. <laughs> your eyeballs would be floating. I had heard two liters, but, it's so, but regardless, a one liter warm water soap-sized enema, wow, that, that you can tell if they're hatched straight from the bottom, right? Um, what do you do if it's a high impaction? The nurse cannot reach it, it's too high, what are you gonna do? You could do the enema. I'm a big fan of frozen Vaseline balls, and we actually do this in hospice care. And, so, you know, I'll give a lecture and somebody say, Was this published? No, it was not published anywhere. You are not going to get a New England Journal of Medicine citation for frozen Vaseline balls. I mean, this is clearly seat of the pants medicine. But what's the problem with drinking mineral oil? You get aspirated, you're going to get lipoid pneumonia. And if you do it chronically, you're going to deplete your fat, soluble vitamins. But a frozen Vaseline ball is just solid mineral oil. So you take and it gives the family something to do. It's awesome. You take a tub of Vaseline, you put it in the freezer. It doesn't actually freeze, but it gets pretty hard. And then you have the family roll them into little pea-sized balls. That's important. This is not an hors d'oeuvre. You're not making meatballs here. A little pea-sized ball. <laughs> and roll it in confectioner sugar, and you put them back in the freezer. And then you have them swallow two or three frozen Vaseline balls. My nurses call them Slick Willies or lots of other names, trust me. A couple, three times a day. So they just go down, they melt, they kind of lube the bowel. So then it really it's just mineral oil once it, gets, uh, it, it becomes more liquid. Uh, you don't have to use confectioner sugar. You can use granulated. Some people like the powder of making like Gatorade drinks and Kool-Aid and stuff like that. You can use cocoa powder. We could do a cookbook, couldn't we, of frozen Vaseline balls. Absolutely. All right, so we do see this quite often. Often I will review the medication history for a hospice patient and the patient is on Imodium and Senna. And I'm like, huh. Are we coming or are we going? What's the scoop here? And I worry that often the patient doesn't know the difference, um, and it may be a fecal impaction. So it feels like to the patient they're having diarrhea when, in fact, it's the fecal content oozing around this fecal impaction. Uh, Lovely. I hope you've all had breakfast now that we're having this lovely conversation. Um, What's the key to diagnosis is this copious amount of stool in the rectum. Uh, Doing a digital exam may or may not help you. Um, But, again, if you, in the absence, or bleeding, um, disimpaction, you know, manual disimpaction, and then maybe following up with that enema. I think patient and family education is really important. Discussing the importance of reporting bowel functioning, frequency, I mean, you can have them keep a log if you want, that's very important, or make a note in their pain diary. Teach the patients who are able to, to, to do exercise, good fluid intake, I think many patients are dehydrated, and encouraging warm liquid with meal, which may help a little bit too. Discussing the importance of responding immediately to the urge to defecate and talking about the benefits of an upright position. So when we try, to, we try to get people to the bedside commode instead of using the bedpan, and I'm thinking that squatty potty, that might be something right there. How to use and dose the laxatives and what to report to the, to the nurse or the physician or whomever. Uh, and certainly avo- avoiding the bulk-forming laxatives with opioid-induced constipation. So let's look at a case. Here's Ms. Potts. She's a 57-year-old woman with low back pain resulting from a motor vehicle collision two years ago. She has status post-spinal surgery and now she's a pain specialist for medical management of chronic pain. Ms. Potts' physician has prescribed oxycodone sustained release 20 Q12, and Oxy5 Q4 PRN. She takes one or two a day. Although her pain is currently well controlled, she presents with complaints of constipation, no bowel movement in two days, with straining and a sensation of incomplete evacuation. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and come up with your plan. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, or you're going to go with docusate alone, senna alone, docusate plus senna, psyllium, lactulose, or polyethylene glycol. So turn to your neighbor, work this out. Okay, let's show of hands here. Who wants to go with plain docusate? Okay, we got one. How about Jacenna? Okay, handful. Docusate plus Senna? Oh, a lot of people like that. Cilium? I hope nobody raises their hand. Lactulose? Couple. Polyethylene glycol? Okay, so it looks like the number one was docusate plus Senna. So good old Senna S. So we've seen this already, the first few bullets. So if you look at consensus guidelines, you know, experts are saying certainly all these non-pharmacologic things as appropriate and as tolerated. And certainly to start off with the non-prescription stool softeners and the laxatives as appropriate. But, you know, there's an emerging body of literature looking at DocuSate plus Senna, where DocuSate maybe is not all it's cracked up to be. This is one example. Um, a couple thousand people randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, from 2013, rather, 74 patients randomized to either docusate placena placenta or placebo placenta. And there was no difference in the stool frequency, volume, or consistency, or difficulty or completeness of evacuation. And other studies looking at cancer patients have shown, actually, DocuSate can make things a little worse. So it can either, in looking at the Bristol stool chart, it actually can go either side of a type 4. It can make it too mushy or still not mushy enough. Maybe it's so mushy people can't evacuated. So actually large healthcare systems have often taken DocuSate off formulary and now we have moved in hospice to just going with plain Sena and not Sena S. I mean I don't think the data is absolutely nailed down but I think it's something to think about. I think it's also important you know everybody's concerned about the financial implications of all medications and as a hospice hospice is is obligated under Medicare regulations now to provide all the medications related to the patient's terminal illness so obviously this is going to include the laxatives so we do look at this but you know all of these medications are very inexpensive so Senna alone two tablets twice a day for a month is about twenty five dollars even if you went with a Senna S it's even a little cheaper twenty one dollars they're all generic and polyethylene glycol now that Miracle. Is available as a generic, very inexpensive. So, all really well tolerated, readily available, and the efficacy from what we can glean, what we've seen, and there's not much data, is about 50% of reaching the patient's therapeutic goal. But importantly, you would agree, this is not target specific therapy. This is just, you know, hastening peristalsis, for example, with senna in the entire bowel. So let's go back to our poor patient, Ms. Potts. She returns to the clinic six weeks after her initial visit. She has had continued problems with constipation, irregular bowel movements, straining, decreased appetite, and nausea. Her bowel regimen now includes Senadocusate 4 Tabs BID. Polyethylene glycol, 17 grams once a day. That's one scoop. Physicotal suppositories, 10 milligrams by rectum as needed. And her last bowel movement was four days ago. She also has had increasingly uncontrolled pain because she's been trying to minimize the use of her PRN opioid. So now I want you to talk to your neighbor and decide what you're going to do. Here, are you going to continue to titrate the non-prescription laxatives? Are you going to start daily enemas? Do you want to go with methanoltrexone, 12 milligrams injected sub-Q daily, naloxigol 25 by mouth daily, or lubiprostone 24 mics by mouth twice daily? Talk to your neighbor. Maybe I should have an F. I don't know. I got nothing. I'm going to call a good-looking pharmacist. Yeah. All right, who wants to do A? Let's continue titrating the, the OTC. We've got a, several votes for that. Daily enemas. A lot of patients like that. Oh, yeah. So nobody wants that. Methanoltrexone, 12 milligrams sub-Q. Okay, we've got about 10 people. Naloxigol, 25 milligrams by mouth. Okay, good number there, and Luby Luby. My resident did her pharmacotherapy rounds years ago on Luby Prostone, and we spent a lot of time dancing around the office singing Luby Luby to the tune of Louie Louie. I know you will not be able to beat that out of your head now, I know. So it looks, and I think there's a fair number of people who probably don't quite know what to do at this point because these are some significant decisions here, aren't they? So what if usually customary does not cut it? Well, I'm not sure what the dogs will do, but I like this clip art. All right, so I just want to talk about a couple of the new products that, are, that have come on the market. Um, so here we're talking about lubiprostone and linaclotide. So. Lubiprostone, Ametiza, 24 mics two times a day. It works in about 24 to 48 hours. It can cause nausea and diarrhea. Linoclotide is Linzess, 140 mics once a day. Again, a little quicker, 12 to 24 hours, but it causes diarrhea and bloating. But that's not indicated for opioid-induced constipation. But I'm seeing it creep in now on our hospice patients. So let's look at lubi first. How does it work? It's a chloride channel activator. So it promotes fluid secretion into the gut and increases mobility. And it it bypasses the anti-secretory action of opioids. The indications it has several here. Chronic idiopathic constipation in adults and opioid induced constipation in adults with chronic non cancer pain, not with advanced illness. 24 mics um, orally twice a day for both of those indications. And then also irritable bowel of the constipation variety in women at least 18, and that dose is quite a bit lower, eight mics orally twice a day. Contraindications with all of these products, of course, this just makes sense. Known or suspected GI obstruction. The precautions. This is kind of interesting. About 3% of patients complain of dyspnea when they take lubiprostone and they describe it as like this sensation of chest tightness. It happens about 30 to 60 minutes after taking the dose and takes several hours to resolve. So it's not very common. It's very uncommon, as a matter of fact, but it kind of scares people. Um, also, you would need to reduce the dose uh, in moderate to severe hepatic impairment. Drug interactions, you know, you're on pretty firm ground here. It's not metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system, but let me tell you, it's very upsetting to me that my girl methadone, it doesn't work very well because methadone is going to reduce, it, it affects the chloride channels. So lubiprostone does not work very well at all to treat constipation if the patient is taking methadone. Works fine with, with morphine and the other opiates, but not the heptanes. Uh, the, the efficacy and the cost. So this is, I think, where the rubber meets the road when we look at these agents. A 12-week study in patients getting non-methadone opioids with documented opioid-induced constipation at baseline. Now here's where you get crazy. With all these new products, they have all these really specific inclusion criteria and specific criteria for outcomes measures. So OIC was defined as less than three spontaneous bowel movements a week with at least 25% of the spontaneous bowel movements associated with either hard to very hard stool consistency, moderate to severe straining, or sensation of incomplete evacuation. So the median weekly spontaneous bowel movement frequency was 1.5 for placebo and 1 to 1.5 for lubiprostate at baseline. So what was considered to be a therapeutic response? Greater than one or more spontaneous bowel movement improvement over baseline for all treatment weeks and three or more spontaneous bowel movements will be reported for at least nine of the 12 weeks. But if it's Tuesday and it's raining and the wind is coming from the south, no, I'm kidding, that's not true. But this is really specific. I guess my point here is when you look at the bottom of the slide and I say, oh my God, the number needed to treat is 13, holy moly, what are we thinking? This is really specific endpoints. I mean, maybe there's somebody who would say, you know, I'm, I have two more bowel movements a week over baseline, um, but only for eight of the 12 weeks. So they would not have met the mark when you're looking at what's a positive response. So sometimes... Good enough is good enough, is my point. But looking, bless you, at that endpoint, Luby had 27.1% of patients met the endpoint versus 18.9% of um, placebo. That was their first study. Study three, they just looked at the change in spontaneous bowel movement by week eight, and there was no statistically significant difference. So looking at that outcome marker, the number needed to treat is 13. And when you look at this dose of 24 mics by mouth twice a day, it's $350 a month. So you would have to treat 13 people at $350 a month to reach the therapeutic endpoint as described in this clinical trial. Side effects, unsurprising, nausea, diarrhea, abdominal pain and flatulence, and less common as shown here. Now this one I'm just going to do very quickly because it's not even approved for opioid-induced constipation, but again, I am seeing it sneak-in in hospice. Linoclotide, which is a guanylate C agonist, uh, both linoclotide and its active metabolite bind to this receptor and act locally in the uh, luminal surface of the intestinal epithelium, and also increases intracellular extracellular cyclic guanosine monophosphate, which stimulates the chloride channel, so again, more fluid into the bowel. It's indicated for irritable bowel of constipation and chronic idiopathic constipation. I would not be surprised if they were considering OIC, but... I, I don't know that for certain. Contraindications have not indicated for kids under six because they have a different chloride channel situation, so it can be harmful, and it has not been really studied in people under 18 years old, so it's very, you should use precautions there. Uh, no real drug interactions, so that's not a, a big deal either. Um, so this drug costs about $350 a month also, and I'm not even going to go into the clinical data because it's not for OIC. So these are the side effects of linoclotide compared to diarrhea. A diarrhea, 20% of patients compared to 3% with a placebo and abdominal pain and flatulence. So things that are not surprising. All right, so I think everybody's super excited about the PEMORAs. What are the PEMORAs? I have to tell you, I've been a pharmacist for a long time, and it is super exciting how targeted these drugs are. My God, if we could treat cancer, targeting the cancer, like we can target the, the uh, opioid receptor in the gut, that would be magical. So we have two on the market right now who are, that are indicated for opioid-induced constipation. Methylnaltrexone, which we've had in the sub-Q formulation for a long time, and as of at this meeting, they, apparently they came out with the oral formulation. It was like, well, there goes my whole talk. I didn't even have the oral in my slides. Um, and then naloxagol, which of course we've had for a little while. Um, both of them are mu-opioid receptor antagonists, but they have a different mechanism. And there's a third on the market, which is Alvimapan, uh, the trade name is Interreg, but that's only indicated for use in the hospital to prevent post op ileus. Um, the way, and I love the, describing the pharmacology, for one thing, I hardly ever get an opportunity to use the word for how alvimapan works and doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. Does anybody know why alvimapan does not cross the blood brain barrier? because it's a zwitterion. How often can you say zwitterion in a complete sentence? It's a very positive end and it's got a very negative end and it's so, the polarity is so screwed up it doesn't even think about crossing the blood-brain barrier. There you go. And I don't think they're going to go for the OIC indication because they had cardiac events in their phase three testing. But I, I can't see how that's related. But they didn't ask me. All right, methyl naltrexone, the first one. So as you can see, the molecular structure on the left is naltrexone, and when you put that big and methyl group on it, as you can see from the arrow, now that's a quaternary amine, and that's what keeps it from crossing across the blood-brain barrier. So that is methyl naltrexone. So we have had, again, the subcutaneous for quite a while. Um, I was really impressed years and years ago when they published the data from their IV formulation. It was like you had laxation within like a minute. Like you couldn't even turn on your Kindle, and it was like it time for the paperwork. How awesome was that? Now that, that's a freaking magic bullet. But I love in their labeling. The first line is be within close proximity to toilet facilities once administered. Wow, that reminds me of the old Banaka Blast commercials. like, put the bottle down. So, I think that it appeals to my sense of the ridiculous. Enough about me. Anyway, you should discontinue laxatives prior to use, but you can add them back if no treatment response within three days. Um, the dose for OIC in chronic non-cancer pain is either the 12 milligram injection daily or the new oral formulation, which is a 150 milligram tablet, and the recommended dose here is 450 milligrams once a day uh, in the morning. For people with opioid-induced constipation in adults with advanced illness, it's still just the sub-Q formulation. The oral does not have this indication. Um, So it's injecting one dose up to every other day as needed. Uh, And the the dose is usually 8 or 12 milligrams, uh, but it it is weight-based. So if they're below uh, 38 kilos or above 114, you would adjust accordingly. You do adjust the dose with the creatinine clearance less than 60 mL per minute for chronic non-cancer pain. You reduce that oral dose to 150 milligrams. The sub-Q, you would just go a 6. And for the advanced illness patients, you give 50% of the recommended sub-Q dose. Like all these products, contraindication and warnings and precautions are very straightforward. So if we look at side effects, I was able to pull from their labeling, comparing the tablets and the injection with placebo. Abdominal pain is less with the tablets. As you can see, injection 29%. That's, that's fairly uh, brisk. Diarrhea, 5 to 6%, 2% with placebo, and the nausea with the injection and the dizziness. So what about their clinical efficacy? Opioid-induced constipation and chronic non-cancer pain, the new oral formulation, Um, this is one of their studies, defined as entry into the study, less than three spontaneous bowel movements a week, and at least one of the following, how awesome is this? They used my Bristol stool chart, how exciting is that? A one or a two, which again is the acorns, or the acorns are stuck together but not happy about it. for at least 25% of the bowel movements, straining during at least 25% or more, or the feeling of incomplete evacuation after at least 25% of the bowel movements. What is a responder? Again, this is pretty intense too, figuring out a responder. Three or more spontaneous bowel movements a week and an increase of one or more spontaneous bowel movements a week over baseline for at least three or more out of the first four weeks of the treatment period. Wow, are you going to need an accountant to follow you around to make sure you met the therapeutic goal. When they looked at oral, 52% of the patients were responders, looking at 450 milligrams a day versus 38% of placebo. So if you look at that, those criteria, you have to treat eight people to get one person to meet that therapeutic response. If you look at the chronic non cancer pain, opioid-induced with the sub-Q, four weeks of methanol trexone sub-Q versus placebo, same sort of thing, as you can see here the inclusion criteria. The responder was the proportion of patients who had three or more bowel movements per week times four weeks. Methanoltrexone was 59% versus 38%. And then when you look at advanced illness, the methanoltrexone sub-Q, which is the only formulation we can use, they could use it in addition to their laxative regimen. The endpoint was proportion of patients with rescue-free laxation within four hours of the dose. And with methanoltrexone, it was, it was fairly brisk, 58 to 62% versus 14% with placebo. Uh, And this is their last study looking at using methyl uh, naltrexan sub-Q every other day for two weeks. uh, And you could increase the dose in the second week. And they're looking here's the proportion of patients with rescue-free laxation within four hours of the first dose and how many within four hours of at least the second of the first four doses. And again, 48% versus 16% for the first dose and then 52% versus 9% for that second dose. So having said all that, um, if you look at the sub-Q methanoltrexone with chronic non-cancer pain, the number needed to treat is about four. Looking at those endpoints I just mentioned, with advanced illness, is even lower it's about 2 to 3 um, when you're looking at this the dose the, the pricing that i found is about $120 a dose so i think you know in my mind there's a there's a clear niche for this and it's it's certainly not first line and it's it's more of a rescue medication in my mind and the cost for the oral i've talked to a bunch of people i called my sister who's the manager of a safeway pharmacy back home uh, she told me one thing a colleague who's actually here in the room uh, showed me on his cell phone the price that he got in the hospital what they can get it for i've heard anything from a day to $15 a a tablet. So I don't know the pricing. I think we'll have to wait and see. And in my mind, looking at this versus the other oral agent on the market, that would be a big consideration for me. The other oral one we have on the market is naloxigal or Movantic. Indicated for opiate-induced constipation in adults with chronic non-cancer pain. The dose is 25 milligrams on an empty stomach in the morning, and you can reduce it with renal impairment of a creatinine clearance of 60 or less. Again, discontinue the laxatives prior to use. You can add them back. So here's the chemical structure. This is the polyethylene glycol derivative of naloxone. So all that pegylation, that long tail that you can see there, is what reduces or prevents it from generally crossing the blood-brain barrier. Uh, contraindications, the same as the other products, but this one also we have the concomitant use of strong 3A4 inhibitors like clarithromycin, ketoconazole, and especially grapefruit juice. If you really are well in the grapefruit juice with this product, the serum level can go up 13-fold, which absolutely can cause opiate withdrawal. So it can cross the blood-brain barrier if you really hike up that serum level. Precautions and warnings, same thing. Drug interactions I just shared with you, adverse effects, the same thing. The first two studies, again, pretty involved here. Constipation defined as less than three spontaneous bowel movements with 25% uh, of them. Spontaneous with one or more of the following straining, harder, lumpy, sensation of invalid evacuation, primary endpoint, three or more spontaneous bowel movements a week, and a change from baseline of at least one or more spontaneous per week for at least nine of the 12 study weeks and three of the last four weeks. And they also looked at the time to the first post-dose spontaneous bowel movement. So this is interesting. The methyl people looked at percent that had laxation in four hours, whereas this one's looking at the time to the first post-dose spontaneous bowel movement. So looking at the study here, study one and study two, looking at their criteria, the percentage of patients responding, 12.5 milligrams was 41%, the 25 milligrams was 44% compared to 29% placebo. Study two, which was very similar methodology, fairly similar results, the 12.5 milligram dose did not achieve statistical significance, but the higher dose did. And then looking at their second uh, outcome measure, which was the median time to first, Post-dose spontaneous bowel movement in study one, the 25-milligram dose was six hours. The 12-and-a-half was about 20 hours. Placebo was 36 hours. And study two, 12 hours for the uh, 25-milligram dose and 37 hours for placebo. Looking at the side effects, very predictable, abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea. Number needed to treat here ranges depending on where you look, seven to 10. Um, I said it's about eight, which is comparable to methanoltrexone from their oral study, and it's less, both of them are less than lubiprostone. The cost is about $300 for 30 tablets for 25 milligrams a day. So back at the ranch with Ms. Potts, what are we gonna do with our girl here? What are we gonna do now? Are we going to do titrate, continue to try to her non um, prescription drugs? Are we going to start daily enemas? Or are we going to go with one of the three new drugs we talked about? You know, I'm a common sense kind of girl. When I look at all this data, you can go blind in your good eye. So I really value the number needed to treat. Realistically, how many people do I have to recommend this drug for, for one to meet the therapeutic endpoint? Now, I will say again, I think the therapeutic endpoint is very complicated and that's a lot of bean counting in my opinion and sometimes you know maybe just a hair shy of that FDA mandated endpoint is good enough. But having said that, what do you think about Lubiprostone? Well, my favorite opiate in the world is methadone, so that kicks it out of the ballpark for me. And you've got to treat 13 people to meet their therapeutic endpoint, and it's 350 a month. Methanoltrexone sub-Q um, is expensive Under uh, discussion. I mean, I don't see people wanting to do an injection every day or every other day chronically for opiate-induced constipation, but it's got an awesome number needed to treat relative to the rest. I see this more as a rescue medication. In hospice, we get a lot of people who are admitted to us where they've tried everything, and they are literally FOS, full of stools. Don't look at me that way. I know what you were thinking. You're all naughty kittens. Um, and, you know, it's, do we admit them for whatever, surgery or whatever, or do we give them Relistor? So we give them an injection of Relistor. It's a good rescue. What about oral methanoltrexone? So number needed to treat is eight. So is naloxagol. Number needed to treat is eight. So we know the price of naloxigol. I don't know the, the price of methanoltrexone. And everything else being equal, efficacy and side effects, it's gonna come down to the cost for me, so stay tuned on that one. We do have, of course, 80 gugabazillion more in the pipeline, because this is a pretty exciting group of drugs, uh, and other agents, like a 5-HT4 agonist. So um, I think this is a, real, it's a really moving field, shall we say. So. Takeaways in my mind, you're never going to get tolerance, so you do have to anticipate this. It's not necessarily a dose-related effect. More morphine does not necessarily mean more constipation. We all have to be proactive, not reactive. Educate our patients and our families and the caregivers. Patients on scheduled opiates should have a prophylactic regimen. If they don't need that much, you can always back off. And know your role, your place in therapy. So I would still, I agree with the experts. Let's start with the -the over-the-counter products. Let's rock that up to as much as the patient can tolerate. If we don't meet our goal, then we should consider the pamoras or the chloride channel activators. But I don't think they're first-line, maybe not even second-line agents. So we have a minute or two left. We have five minutes left. Does anyone have a comment or a question? Good joke, anything? Oh, lots right here. Yeah, the question was taking a once a day versus twice a day. I've not seen any data suggesting one one. Has anybody seen any clinical difference by dosing it twice a day versus once a day? I, I would just be concerned if somebody was taking eight tablets a day. I would not do eight tablets at once. I think they would be very unhappy an hour later, if you know what I mean. I think for the sake of not ripping out their entire abdomen, I would probably break it up. Yeah, back there. yeah I can only speculate that they don't want too brisk of a response right out of the gate um, that's I can just speculate I, I i don't know other than that that that's a good point i I don't know I think that's a good thing to research as well, but if you're going to use it chronically that that's the labeling instruction right now, but it's a good point so yeah andryline bulb. <laughs> ah, well they're dirt cheap um you know this this came from hospices. Uh, that took, they were, you know, when hospice started in this country, it was very kumbaya. It was, it was a volunteer effort. It was, you know, everybody got a ham sandwich, Haldol, Ativan, and morphine, and that was the end of it. That's all you got. Um, so they couldn't really afford many medications. So this was like a remedy, that, like a home remedy that they would use. So really Vaseline, Petrolatum, is solid at room temperature, mineral oil. So all we would have the patients do is, you know, chill it so it's easier to handle, roll these little balls and refreeze them, and have the patients swallow a couple, three, it's just, it just becomes mineral oil once it hits body temperature. So by the time it hits the, the gut, the bowel, it kind of melts, and now it's mineral oil, and it just kind of, Makes everything kind of slide along. My my example that I always give is when my niece was born. who was now a third year medical stu- student at Wake Forest Medical School. My sister said, "This child is going to have the perfect diet. She is never going to know the inside of McDonald's. This kid is going to have a diet as pure as the driven snow. The kid." had such constipation, she would have a bowel movement like a six foot four man would have. It was, she would get like a fistula. She had such a freaking big bowel movement. I was like, Andrea, the kid needs a happy meal. She needs some grease. The kid needs a grease ball burger. Take her to McDonald's, get her a happy meal and she'll be fine. And my sister lightened up and the kid was fine. (laughs) My niece would die if she knew I was telling the story. (laughs) Back there. It's going to be busy before breakfast. So what is your question about all that? Uh, That's a good question. Is it going to hasten peristalsis sufficiently to alter the absorption of the drug? I've not seen anything published that it would, but that's a good question. I don't know. I I think it's okay, but if it's something, if it's a drug, like you know how we have some drugs that are called critical substituted drugs where we're not quick to give an AB rating? I would probably be a little bit careful. Maybe take those drugs maybe an hour before breakfast. Yeah. What about the poor man's oral naloxone? The poor man's oral naloxone. And that, that's certainly an option to consider, but you do run the risk of reversing analgesia. But if you do it low dose, it's something to consider. So I mean, we've actually done like a 2 dose, mm-hmm. 4 dose. Yeah. No, I've seen data on that, and, and it can be a useful therapeutic strategy. But, you know, I, I mostly work with home-based patients. And that would make me really nervous. In the back, yes. Yeah, we have not personally done it in my practice. Have you been using it? And how does that work for you? Okay. Okay, good to know. More than 50% of patients. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. Prune therapy. We need more prune therapy. It's cheap. There you go. I do like um, Yakima paste, by the way. I think Yakima paste. You all know what Yakima paste is? Oh, my God. It's from Yakima, Washington. It's got like senna tea and prunes and honey. And it, just Google it. You'll find the recipe or email me. I'll send it to you. We do it with hospice patients all the time who are resistant to using opioid, to using bowel regimens. And it comes like a paste. You can put it on toast. You can, you can make it a tea. You can eat it right off the spoon. It's very sweet. <laughs> what can I say? I'm not much of a cook. Yes, that's a good question. Do we get a prescription from the attending to use frozen Vaseline balls? Yes. Anything the patient, we do to the patient or they ingest, we have to have an order. So we generally have to explain what the heck us crazy people are doing with that. No, we have the family do it. Keeps them out of trouble, gives them something to do. Well, I see we're right at 950. Thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate it.